0: European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 42, Issue 27. Focus Issue, Interventional Cardiology, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. New challenges for interventional cardiology emerging in trials and real-world studies. Elective percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI, is considered a safe treatment for chronic coronary syndrome or CCS with a very low rate of major procedural complications. Technical advances in PCI and new pharmacological therapies in coronary angiography procedures have resulted in a drastic reduction in PCI related complications such as acute stent thrombosis, stroke or vascular access bleeding. As a result, Elective PCI can currently be performed in ambulatory systems of care without patients being treated and discharged on the same day. Although the rate of serious complications is low, post-PCI increases in cardiac biomarkers are frequent, especially in the era of high sensitivity cardiac troponin or CTN. However, the prognostic importance of post-PCI CTN elevations in CCS patients undergoing elective PCI in terms of recurrent cardiovascular events and long-term mortality remains debated. This focus issue on interventional cardiology contains the special article, Prognostically Relevant Periprocedural Myocardial Injury and Infarction Associated with Percutaneous Coronary Interventions, a consensus document of the ESC Working Group on Cellular Biology of the Heart, and European Association of Percutaneous Cardiovascular Interventions, or EAPCI, authored by Hiraj Naren-Bullock from the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital in the United Kingdom and colleagues. In this contribution, the authors note that accurate diagnosis of post-PCI CTN elevations in CCS patients undergoing elective PCI is required to guide further management given that their occurrence may be associated with increased risk of major cardiovascular events, or MACE. Due to lack of scientific data, the cutoff thresholds of post-PCI cardiac CTN elevation used for defining periprocedural myocardial injury and infarction have been selected based on consensus expert opinions and their prognostic relevance remain unclear. In this consensus document from the ESC Working Group on Cellular Biology of the Heart and the EA-PCI, the authors recommend, wherever possible, the measurement of baseline pre-PCI CTN and post-PCI-CTN values in all CCS patients undergoing PCI. They confirm the prognostic relevance of the post-PCI-CTN elevation greater than 5 times 99th percentile upper reference limit, or URL threshold, used to define type 4 a myocardial infarction, or MI. In the absence of periprocedural angiographic flow limiting complications, or ECG, and imaging evidence of new myocardial ischemia, they propose the same post-PCI CTN cutoff threshold, i.e. greater than 5 times 99th percentile URL, to be used to define prognostically relevant major periprocedural myocardial injury. As both type 4 a MI and major periprocedural myocardial injury are strong independent predictors of all-cause mortality at one year post-PCI, They may be used as quality metrics and surrogate endpoints for clinical trials. Further research is needed to evaluate treatment strategies for reducing the risk of major periprocedural myocardial injury, type 4 AMI, and MACE in CCS patients undergoing PCI. Contemporary second-generation drug-eluting stents, or DES, are considered standard of care for revascularization of patients with coronary artery disease, or CAD, undergoing PCI, and have improved safety and effectiveness compared with first-generation DES platforms. These clinical advances have arisen from optimization of antiproliferative agents, the use of more biocompatible polymers, and a reduction in stent strut thickness with the use of more malleable metal alloys. Despite these improvements, conventional second-generation thin-strut DES are not event-free and remain associated with an ongoing risk of adverse clinical events beyond the first year of implantation. Ultra-thin strut DES, less than or equal to 70 micrometers, with biodegradable polymers were developed to further improve outcomes after PCI by reducing vessel injury and late polymer-induced inflammation and promoting more rapid endothelization. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled, Long-term follow-up after ultra-thin versus conventional second-generation drug-eluting stents, a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized Control trials. Mahesh Madhuven and colleagues from the New York Presbyterian Hospital in the United States, sought to perform an updated systematic review and meta-analysis of RCTs comparing clinical outcomes with ultra-thin DES, less than or equal to 70 micrometre strut thickness, with conventional, second-generation, thin-strut DES. The pre-specified primary endpoint was long-term target lesion failure, or TLF, a composite of cardiac death, MI, or clinically-driven target lesion revascularization, or CD-TLR. Secondary endpoints included the components of TLF, stent thrombosis, or ST, and all-cause death. There were 16 eligible trials in which greater than 20,500 patients were randomized. The weighted mean follow-up duration was 2.5 years. Ultra-thin strut DES were associated with a 15% reduction in long-term TLF compared with conventional second-generation thin-strut DES. Relative risk 0.85, P equaling 0.008. Driven by a 25% reduction in CDTLR. Relative risk 0.75, P equaling 0.005. There was no significant differences between stent type in the risk of MI, ST, cardiac death, or all-cause mortality. The authors conclude that at mean follow-up of 2.5 years, ultra-thin strut DES reduce the risk of TLF, driven by less CD-TLR compared with conventional second-generation thin-strut DES, with similar risk of MI, ST, cardiac death, and all-cause mortality. The manuscript is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Colin Berry from the University of Glasgow in the United Kingdom. Professor Berry notes that this case highlights some fundamental limitations of meta-analysis. Firstly, The validity of the analysis is dependent on including all relevant studies. Negative publication bias by trialists or inadvertent error by those leading the meta-analysis may lead to omission of relevant data. Secondly, researchers undertaking study-level meta-analysis are not using source data that they have generated and take responsibility for. Rather, they are including the results that other investigators have reported Thirdly, clinical trials are a moving target. A primary endpoint is defined in time, but extensions to the follow-up period may or may not be predefined. And even if predefined, additional factors, e.g. funding, may influence future delivery and publication. The results of meta-analysis are therefore updatable, and the clinical implications may change over time. Ischemic heart disease, or IHD, is the most common cause of heart failure, or HF, accounting for approximately two-thirds of all HF cases. Routine revascularization provides superior outcomes compared with optimal medical therapy, or OMT, alone. And current European and American guidelines recommend an invasive approach in addition to OMT in patients with reduced left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF, and multivessel disease, or MVD. However, the effects of PCI in patients with HF and concomitant MVD have not been evaluated in a randomized setting. While European guidelines encourage revascularization with PCI based on observational studies, American guidelines deem the available evidence for PCI insufficient. In a clinical research article entitled Long-term mortality in patients with ischemic heart failure revascularized with coronary artery bypass grafting or percutaneous coronary intervention. Insights from the Swedish coronary angiography and angioplasty registry or scar. Sebastian voltz from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden and colleagues compared coronary artery bypass grafting or cabbage and percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI, for treatment of patients with HF due to IHD. The authors analysed all-cause mortality following cabbage or PCI in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and MVD coronary artery stenosis greater than 50% in greater than or equal to two vessels or left main who underwent coronary angiography between 2000 and 2018 in Sweden. They used a propensity score-adjusted logistic and Cox Proportional Hazards Regressions and Instrumental Variable Model to adjust for known and unknown confounders. Multi-level modeling was used to adjust for the clustering of observations in a hierarchical database. In total, greater than 2,500 patients, 82.9% men and 17.1% women were included. The mean age was 68 years, and 65% had three vessel or left main disease. Median follow-up time was 3.9 years, Primary designated therapy was PCI in 56% and CABBAGE in 44%. There were 1,010 deaths. Risk of death was lower after CABBAGE than after PCI. Odds ratio 0.62, P equals 0.031. The risk of death increased linearly with quintiles of hospitals in which PCI was the preferred method for revascularization. Odds ratio 1.27, P trend less than 0.001. The authors conclude that in patients with ischemic HF, long-term survival is greater after cabbage than after PCI. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial authored by Patrick Surreyes from the Imperial College in London, UK, and colleagues. The authors conclude that although the present study supports the recommendation of current guidelines, the study also highlights the inherent study limitations derived from a non-randomized source in the context of PCI versus cabbage. The next step, which is of crucial importance, is to conduct a dedicated randomized study in patients who are considered as PCI eligible in contemporary clinical practice. Stroke remains the most common ischemic complication following transcatheter aortic valve intervention, or TAVI, with a roughly 2 to 6% periprocedural stroke risk. Moreover, covert or silent ischemic brain injury detected by diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging, or DWMRI, affects 85 to 100% of patients after TAVI. In a clinical research article, a randomized evaluation of the TriGuard HDH cerebral embolic protection device to reduce the impact of cerebral embolic lesions after transcatheter aortic valve implantation the REFLECT-Eye trial. Alexandra Lansky from the Yale School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut, USA and colleagues indicate that the REFLECT-Eye trial investigated the safety and effectiveness of the Trigard TM-HDH or TG cerebral embolic deflection device in patients undergoing TAVI in this prospective multicenter, single-blind, two-to-one randomized TG versus no-TG study. The primary efficacy endpoint was a hierarchical composite of 1. All-cause mortality or any stroke at 30 days 2. NIHSS worsening from baseline 2-5 to days post-procedure or Montreal cognitive assessment worsening decrease of 3 points or more from baseline at 30 days and 3. Total volume of cerebral ischemic lesions detected by DWMRI two to five days post-procedure in final analysis. A total of 258 of the planned 375 patients, or 69%, were ultimately enrolled. The Reflect Eye trial was suspended early to evaluate the next-generation Trigard 3 device. The primary hierarchical FSC endpoint was not met. Lansky et al. conclude that the Reflect Eye trial demonstrates that Trigard HDH Cerebral Protection during Tavar is safe in comparison with historical TAVI data, but it does not meet the predefined effectiveness endpoint compared with unprotected TAVI controls. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Rajesh Karbanda from the Oxford University Hospital NHS Trust in the United Kingdom. The authors conclude that a key lesson from the Reflect Eye trial is that it is imperative that all studies involving novel devices are published so that the safety and efficacy data are available to inform device evaluation in clinical trials and practice. It is commendable that the authors and journal editors have sought to publish the findings from Reflect ReflectEye, despite the early termination of the trial, to ensure that these can meaningfully contribute to the ongoing discussion about the role of embolic protection devices in TAVI. Globally, women may be referred later for aortic valve replacement, or AVR, when compared to men, explaining an older age, more severe symptoms, and more severe aortic stenosis, or AS, at the time of aortic AVR, despite fewer comorbidities. However, the data are scarce in the literature to confirm this hypothesis, and the overall impact of sex on the course of AS remains poorly understood. In a clinical research article, Impact of sex on the management and outcome of aortic stenosis patients. David Biangernetti-Boudreau from the Institut Universitaire de Cardiologie et de Pneumologie de Quebec in Canada and colleagues examined the impact of sex on the management and outcome of patients according to aortic AS severity. Doppler echocardiography of patients with at least mild to moderate AS were prospectively collected between 2005 and 2015 and retrospectively analysed. Patients with LVEF less than 50% or mitral or aortic regurgitation greater than mild were excluded. Among 3,632 patients, 42% were women and mean indexed aortic valve area, V-peak and mean aortic gradient were similar between sexes. Women were older, 73 versus 70 years, had more hypertension, 75% versus 70%, and less coronary artery disease, 38% versus 55%. After inverse propensity weighting, or IPW, female sex was associated with higher mortality, IPWHR 1.91, P equaling 0.01, and less referrals to AVR. IPW sub-HR, 0.88, P equaling 0.007, in the whole cohort. This excess mortality in women was blunted in concordant non-severe AS initially treated conservatively or in concordant severe AS initially treated by valve intervention. Interestingly, the excess mortality in women was present in discordant low-gradient AS patients, IPWHR equaling 2.17, p equaling 0.01, where women were less referred to valve intervention, IPW sub HR 0.83, p equaling 0.009. The authors conclude that despite similar baseline hemodynamic AS severity, women are less referred to AVR and have higher mortality. This seems mostly associated with the population with discordance between markers of AS severity, i.e. low-gradient AS, in whom women are less referred to valve intervention. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Irene Lang and Georg Goliash from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. The authors conclude that we should be alerted by those female patients with low-gradient AS and ensure that 1. Severe AS is not missed because of lower computed tomography calcium thresholds and two, a decision for medical therapy is fully justified, for example, by patient choice or frailty. Still, in a large consecutive series of patients from a world-leading centre of valvular heart disease care, female patients with AS had higher mortality. In a state-of-the-art review article entitled Immediate Post-Procedural Functional Assessment of Percutaneous Coronary Intervention Current Evidence and Future Directions, by Daxin Ding from the National University of Ireland and colleagues, the authors indicate that PCI guided by coronary physiology provides symptomatic benefit and improves patient outcomes. Nevertheless, over one-fourth of patients still experience recurrent angina or major adverse cardiac events following the index procedure. Coronary angiography, the current workhorse for evaluating PCI efficacy, has limited ability to identify suboptimal PCI results. Accumulating evidence supports the usefulness of immediate post-procedural functional assessment. This review discusses the incidents and possible mechanisms behind a suboptimal physiology immediately after PCI. Furthermore, the authors summarize the current evidence base Supporting the usefulness of immediate post PCI functional assessment for evaluating PCI effectiveness, guiding PCI optimization, and predicting clinical outcomes. Multiple observational studies and post hoc analyses of datasets from randomized trials demonstrate that higher post PCI functional results are associated with better clinical outcomes, as well as a reduced rate of residual angina and repeat revascularization. As such, post PCI functional assessment is anticipated to impact patient management, secondary prevention, and resource utilization. Pre PCI physiologic guidance has been shown to improve clinical outcomes and reduce healthcare costs. Whether similar benefits can be achieved using post PCI physiological assessment requires evaluation in randomized clinical outcome trials. This issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled, Ticagrelor monotherapy following percutaneous coronary intervention for acute coronary syndrome in twilight patients, still a future for aspirin? Mattia Lunardi and colleagues from the National University of Ireland comment on the recent publication Ticagrelor alone versus ticagrelor plus aspirin following percutaneous coronary intervention in patients with non-ST-segment elevation acute coronary syndromes, twilight ACS. By Usman Beber from the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center in the USA. Baber et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.